Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Thursday, December 21st, 2023. Coming up, a new hostage deal, maybe, and new deadly numbers coming from Gaza, plus a new poll shows that Trump is ahead of Biden by six points among registered voters under 30. We begin with the prospect of a new hostage deal. Here's a piece from the CounterPoints News Channel. That is what is now driving Israel kind of back to the negotiating table, if we can put up this this Axios scoop. So Israel offers Hamas one-week pause, its minimum one-week pause could be extended, in fighting as part of a new hostage deal. So uh, Israel had been demanding in Warsaw, in talks that have been uh, mediated by Qatar, that the only way that they're going to agree to a ceasefire is if Hamas lays down all of its arms and turns over you know, all of its all of its top officials, and Hamas is like, well, that's not. We're not gonna we're not gonna do that. Uh, and the last um, hostage deal broke down. Uh, Hamas was claiming that Israel wasn't abiding by it. Israel claimed that Hamas stopped you know releasing hostages. Uh, Hamas said all of the remaining women that they had in in their captivity uh, were IDF soldiers, mm. and so. Uh, therefore, they didn't fit under the kind of rubric of the deal that they were going to release kind of women and children and the elderly. So uh, this this new deal that's being uh, worked out now would see, what, some 60 or so um, hostages uh, released, uh, people who are, uh, you know, w- women, children, um, uh, sick, uh, you know, like elderly, otherwise um, facing serious health complications. Uh, and... You know, some of those could be IDF, I suppose, because they don't really specify. Yeah. Um, and in exchange, Israel would release um, some Palestinians who were convicted of like significant offenses, who are themselves in you know facing like dire health complications or old age. Uh, and so that's the that's the current uh, deal being uh, being discussed right now. Do you think Do you think we're going to see something? over the next couple days that starts to see more hostages released? Yeah, I think we will, um, especially because, to your point, there's a lot of pressure right now on Netanyahu. Netanyahu met again with families mm-hmm. of hostages yesterday and had to cap the fa- number of families at, I think, 15. And there was a lot of discontent, actually, about people being left off the list. And the hostages themselves, we were just talking about the sort of precision versus parking lot dynamic, uh, have spoken to that and have said, you were bombing us. You know, hostages that have been returned have said, we were being bombed. Uh, you say you know what you're doing, but we constantly felt like we were under threat of death, basically. So that's a, a, obviously huge pressures. That puts huge pressures on Netanyahu's government to uh, bring hostages home. Um, and obviously, that's that, that's no surprise that there's pressure on him to bring the hostages home, but it's more and more, uh, more and more pressure that as you continue to wage this campaign, we also need the progress in terms of, you know, there's still eight Americans being held hostage. It's, it's crazy, I think, how the hostages have gotten 
lost in the conversations about this war. That like this is basically the the number one bargaining chip that Hamas sort of disgustingly used uh, during its invasion, its incursion on October 7th was the hostages. And these are people who are just languishing um, in tunnels, in horrifying situations that could lead to their death at the hands of their own military, their own government, as we saw with three people last week, uh, and eight Americans. I mean, it just, it feels like it gets lost in those headlines every single day that eight Americans, among many other hostages, are still being held in uh, these, these terrible conditions. And that's the top objective. It should yeah. absolutely be the top objective uh, every single day uh, so that we can you know, come to the table and, and get closer to, to peace. Um, so there's just a ton of pressure, I think, on, on Netanyahu to, to make these deals. Yeah, now in, there's pressure uh, from the other side to keep the war going. So if people remember back in the very early stages of this war, uh, Finance Minister uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who's w one of the like leading like f hard, hard right figures in, in the cabinet, in a cabinet meeting said, and this quote has become uh, notorious, he said, we have to be cruel now and not to think too much about the hostages over much. Uh, we have to be cruel now and not to think too much about the hostages in Gaza. It's time for action. Mm -hmm. And there has been, and uh, Ben Gavir at the time, uh, of, of the last pause said, you know, if you don't start this war up again, I'm going to bring the government down. So there's this pressure on the other side. It, it is not lost on the far right inside uh, the cabinet that a lot of these hostages are, have been peace activists in the past. These are kind of internal political adversaries of, of, the, of the far right government in Israel. And as they've been getting released, they have been potent, critics of that government. And so, so for people like Smotrich, they're like, their mission is to just completely level Gaza. Yeah. And the hostages who are, whose mission is not, whose mission is to survive and get out, um, but also have, ha, are, are among the kind of remaining faction in Israel that have um, a, a real kind of solidarity uh, with, with kind of peace activists around the world, trying to like, resolve this conflict in a peaceful way rather than violently, um, they're, they're not helpful um, when they get out on the public stage. And you've, and you've seen a lot of damaging meetings with Netanyahu, rallies that the, that the released hostages have been able to have the families of the hostages calling on Netanyahu to stop the bombing and let them out. And it's impossible to imagine coming to a peace, to, to using peace to come to you know, some type of settlement with Hamas. But the big question going forward is, does anything that's happened, that does anything that's happening right now in Gaza make Israelis safer in the, right. the near term? And that's a, a completely reasonable point to raise. But Netanyahu is under pressure uh, from, to your point, from Smotrich and Ben Gavir uh, right now in those factions of his government. He's under pressure from the United States government in a different direction that's saying, you know, we would, our preference is that this is, this invasion is drawn down by the new year. And these are all, I think, uh, variables that will contribute to uh, not just a seven day pause, but potentially something longer in the interest of getting hostages back and shifting uh, to something that is, is much clearly more of a precision operation in Gaza. Right. Yeah. And then the numbers that are being uh, circulated among humanitarian relief activists. So Ahmed Khan, who's, a, who's uh, done work there, uh, humanitarian relief activist, you know, sent to me, they're, they're 
between 26,667 killed and missing. Mm. Um, was, there are almost 20,000 killed who've arrived in hospitals. But Gaza is rubble. And underneath that rubble, you know, could be uh, six, six, 7,000 uh, bodies or more. Like we're, and we're talking about you know, 8,000 children, 14,000 women and children, um, three, uh, you know, 90, how many journalists at this point? Um, almost 100 journalists, 90 schools and universities completely destroyed, 112 mosques completely destroyed, um, 200 mosques partially destroyed, three churches targeted and destroyed, um, 2 million people roughly, this, at this point, displaced. Well, and that's why it's difficult for our government, for the Israeli government, to say we, it is not our goal to target uh, churches, hospitals, or we've uh, made it very clear to the Israeli government that we don't want them targeting churches and hospitals, but then at the same time to make the case, which is true, by the way, that these are centers of military operation, that you know these are places where people are conducting military operations. Gaza, Gaza is small. Uh, it's compact. It's yeah. highly concentrated. Uh, so, of course, there's overlap in these cases. And that's where I think it, it gets difficult to uh, continue to say one thing and to have the sort of war play out in the court of public opinion. Here's Kyle Kalinske with some of the latest numbers coming out of Gaza. Okay, so now I'll give you guys an update. We have new numbers. This is from the human rights group Euromen Monitor. According to them, there are 26,612 Palestinians who have now been killed. By the way, I should point out that I'm sure many of the deaths now are as a direct result of going thirsty or going hungry, like starving to death. Because this medieval-style siege, it's using starvation as a weapon of war, and the logical consequence of that is there's going to be people who die from it. So this is, I've never seen anything like this in my life. This is a level of barbarity that I think we all hoped had been left far in the past. It turns out that's not the case. So now we're at 10,305 children who have been killed. By the way, uh, Chris Hayes, the MSNBC host, finally came out and said, Jesus Christ, all right, we got to stop this. This is too far. I mean, October 7th was horrific, but this is not the way you react to October 7th. You don't respond to an atrocity with your own atrocities. And, you know, better late than never, good. But also, it literally took over 10,000 children being killed before Chris Hayes and MSNBC host finally said, all right, enough. We have 5,475 women who have been killed. Of the 26,612 Palestinians killed in total, 24,320 of them are civilians. So you do the percentage on that. It ain't pretty. We have about 52,000 injuries. Now 93 journalists have been killed and 1.9 million Gazans are displaced. Remember, there's 2.3 million people in Gaza. So that you do that percentage as well. It is, it's ugly, man. Um, and then also, I should point out, 296 schools have been damaged and um, 162 mosques and four churches. So the the number that we also always show here is 131 targeted health facilities, 23 hospitals bombed. I always bring that one up for the simple reason that people were arguing over the Al-Ali hospital bombing and saying, well, was it a misfired Hamas rocket or Palestinian jihad thing or was it the IDF? And it's like, even if I grant you that that wasn't the IDF, which, by the way, I don't, I think it was the IDF, um, what about the 22 other hospitals that have been bombed? It just goes to show you how disingenuous the entire debate around this thing has been. All right. So now let me play this for you. So in the midst of all of this slaughter, the numbers I just showed you, here's what the Secretary of Defense comes out and says in a press conference. As John F. Kennedy said in 1960, 
America's friendship with Israel is a national commitment. That was true then, and it's even truer now. The United States will remain Israel's closest friend in the world. As I've said repeatedly, our support for Israel's security remains unshakable, and it always will. So let's just digest what they're actually saying here. What they're saying is, yeah, we may virtue signal around the edges and say, oh, you need to be more specific in targeting Hamas and not civilians. But fundamentally, it doesn't matter. Because we are going to back you as a matter of principle. It is an unshakable, his words, not mine, bond. All right, well, then when everybody says, um, you know, you are just as guilty of the war crimes being committed, that is accurate. That is true. This is a very clear message. And it's astonishing. So I think we discussed this the other day, but I'll bring it up here again. Uh, Ryan Grimm says, Extremely ominous. The reference here from Israel's representative at the UN to a willingness of other countries to accept Gaza workers suggests a rather dystopian potential that after Gaza is made uninhabitable, the surviving Palestinians will be allowed to become itinerant migrant laborers around the world. So this is part of their plan. This is like the voluntary relocation thing. And Palestinians will be in a position sort of like the refugees are now, where, like, they're not citizens anywhere, they don't have any rights, and they're just stuck in this, like, legal limbo, and they're being taken advantage of for cheap labor. This is like, this is like what they're telling you is the plan moving forward. So, uh, here is, it, I found this actually rather interesting. I didn't think this would be the case. So we had a poll that came out the other day that said only 2% of, or it's like 1.6% to be exact, of the Israeli population was like, you know what, you're using too much force in Gaza. That is astonishing. That's astonishing. So when I saw this poll, I was like, huh, that's interesting. Apparently, most Israelis oppose annexing Gaza after the conflict. A recent survey conducted by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem reveals that a majority of Israelis are opposed to the annexation of the Gaza Strip when the ongoing conflict with Hamas ends. According to the findings, 56% of Israelis are against the annexation and resettlement of Gaza, while 33% express support and 11% remain undecided. Regarding the post-conflict control of Gaza, the survey reflects diverse perspectives. Notably, 23% advocate for Arab countries to supervise Gaza, and 22% support Israeli military governance. Additionally, 18% favor an international force under the UN, and another 18% lean towards the idea of Israel annexing Gaza. So, the reason why I'm surprised by this is that based on the numbers about supporting the aggression, supporting the bombing campaign, I thought it would definitely be a majority of Israelis that say, yeah, resettle Gaza. Uh, but it's not. But it's not. They're against resettling it. But I got bad news for these Israelis. That is literally what they're in the process of doing right now. That's why you have in the middle of Gaza City a giant Israeli flag. That's why there were videos coming out from uh, IDF soldiers in tanks recording it as they're in North Gaza. It's all rubble and they're planting Israeli flags like every 30 feet. You have people already talking about, we're going to get a house on the beach here. You have companies that are like releasing ads about, yeah, we're going to start building like townhouses on the beach in Gaza. So I think that is what's almost certainly going to happen. Um, but apparently most of the population is actually against it, which is a good thing. But, you know, are they going to change anything here? I tend to doubt it. And also it's not like, even if uh, Netanyahu gets kicked out of office and what, you get one of the opposition party leaders in there like Yair Lapid, he's just as insane as Netanyahu is and he probably keep the same policy going.
A New York Times Siena College poll released Tuesday shows that Trump is ahead of Biden by six points among registered voters under 30. Here's a report from the Rising Broadcast. Have young voters soured so much on President Joe Biden that they're now supporting Donald Trump? For The New York Times, for the first time, Mr. Trump leads President Biden among the youngest voters in a Times-Siena national survey, 49 percent to 43 percent. It's enough to give him a narrow 46 to 44 lead among registered voters overall. Young voters say Biden hasn't delivered on his campaign promises and isn't making their lives better. Let's watch some of the disaffected speak with NBC. Give me the emotion that you have in looking at your choice this election. Not not enthused. Uh, I'd say overall I feel very pragmatic and strategic about it. All of these issues that, that are popular with Democrats, he has not only not addressed, but often gone the entire opposite way on. I mean, I can look at like almost every issue in my head that's important to me, and I see a failure on Biden's part. Biden's age is also playing into voters' concerns. Per Axios, polls indicate that more than 70 percent of voters have concerns about Biden serving a second term because of his age. However, the president is in apparent denial, aides tell Axios. The outlet reports that the first lady and staffers to the president are frustrated by Biden's blanket refusal to acknowledge his own physical limitations. Now, here to discuss Biden's young voter woes is host of Savvy Sab's podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome back, Sabrina. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, our pleasure. So every day we talk about the more bad poll results for Biden, more bad news for Biden. Now specifically down. First, it was specifically down in the swing states. Now it's specifically down with young people down so far that it actually looks right now like Donald Trump could somehow win the youngest age demographic. Um, what is going on here? So I actually worked with this population for quite some time at the universities. And I think what people have to understand is that by the time they would reach me when they were 18 years old, this particular population was already incredibly resourceful. Uh, they are less likely to buy into the narrative from mainstream media. They're more likely to seek out other outlets and opinions. Uh, they had resources at their fingertips that I think my generation did not have growing up. There was no uh, independent media show to watch on YouTube when I was growing up because YouTube didn't exist. So there are a lot more platforms that they have access to as well. And I think that they're just less likely to buy into the two-party system as well, too. But I think when they're comparing Joe Biden to Donald Trump, they're thinking about two things. They're thinking about the economy and they're thinking about foreign policy decisions. So when it comes to the economy, I think the reason why some of these voters are walking away from Joe Biden is that even though Joe Biden has claimed that he's created all of these jobs, a lot of these, these graduates, particularly the undergraduate uh, college students, they're graduating and they're, the job offers that they're receiving when I spoke to them, a lot of these are gig positions that don't have full-time benefits. So when Joe Biden says in a press conference that he's created all these jobs, but he doesn't explain to you what those jobs are and if they actually offer benefits, that's a problem in that generation in particular that's out in the job market they can see that Joe Biden isn't being honest, and then they can make that comparison to Trump's economy when he was president. How were they doing in reference to inflation? How were they doing in reference to uh, wages? So they can make the comparison there. Then there's the foreign policy decisions that Joe Biden has made. 
while I would not call Donald Trump anti-war, I will say that he didn't start any new wars. We now have two international conflicts under Joe Biden, possibly a third, considering the U.S. government is willing to go to war with Yemen now. So these are really big issues. And I think this is the first time that I've seen, at least in my adult life, where people are actually unwilling to vote for a presidential candidate because of their foreign policy decisions, particularly the younger voters. But I think this population in particular, what they have said to me is that they feel like their voices are not heard and they're sincerely worried about their future, particularly their economic future. They're not even trying to think about purchasing a home or starting a family. They're trying to use the money that they do have on experiences because they've told me there's no way they're going to be able to buy a house or start a family in the first place. The binary nature of our political system seems to be forcing even this conversation into a zero-sum game where there's a kind of built-in presumption as we're talking that votes that are being lost from Biden or lost by Biden are going to Donald Trump when polls on all of the issue areas that you just uh weighed in on there seem to suggest that younger voters are leaving Biden because they want a more progressive, if you can even call it that. Some of these are just such mainstream desires, like having a living wage, having some guarantee of health care, despite having the poorer employment uh, prospects that you just described, et cetera, et cetera. Those are what's uh, driving voters. So um, how does bringing in the uh, interest in third-party candidacies, whether it's Cornell West, Jill Stein, uh, RFK Jr., Cenk Uger, whoever it is, uh, factor into what's going on here. Yes, yeah, so some of the young voters I've spoken to told me that they're more willing to vote for like a Jill Stein or a Cornell West, but most of them that I've heard from said they're most likely to sit it out. Uh, some have decided to move over towards Donald Trump, or particularly some of them who are African-American voters are saying that they're going to move over towards Donald Trump. I think that when you have candidates like Jill Stein, Cornell West, and also RFK Jr. as well, I think that they're speaking to certain issues that really appeal to younger people. So we all know Jill Stein and Cornell West, they tend to have the same position when it comes to Israel and Gaza. So a lot of the younger voters that are out there protesting in the streets, they're looking for a candidate that has the same position on that issue as they do. Now, this is different compared to 2020. We didn't have this war with Israel and Gaza. There was still the, the occupation and oppression, but we didn't have this war. So at that point in time, Joe Biden didn't have to really concern himself with that. We also didn't have this war with Ukraine. So it's a very different dynamic now. And I think more younger voters, if they do come out to vote, I think more of them will go towards a Jill Stein or a Cornell West. I just saw a poll recently that showed that Jill Stein is polling 7% among uh, younger voters, which is pretty significant for a third party candidate. I think RFK Jr. was polling at 15%. Uh, but I think that's because some of the younger voters are still not aware of his position when it comes to this issue with Israel and Gaza. I think once they hear more from him about this, I think they're more likely to be turned away from him on that position. But the big thing that I keep hearing from people is the economy. They're still dealing with inflation. They're still dealing with finding a job, a permanent job that is gonna give them benefits. And they're un unsure about their future and they feel like they just don't see a path forward. You compare that to Donald Trump's presidency in 2020, and they didn't have some of those same concerns. And I think that's the big thing, and that's raising a lot of flags for people. 
What could Joe Biden do between now and Election Day to bring people back into the fold? Does he have to hope, what, the Gaza issue comes to some end of its own accord or the economy magically gets better and people um, respond to that or, or, or credit Biden's policies with achieving that? I think two things need to happen. Number one, he's going to have to call for a permanent ceasefire and stop funding Israel with arms. That's a big one that will resonate with the younger voters. The other issue is Joe Biden has to actually build a base, which he never did. We all have to go back to the 2020 uh, election. You got to remember some of these younger voters supported Bernie Sanders. Bernie actually had the youth vote. When Bernie dropped out and he told those younger voters to support Joe Biden, it's not like they were passionate about voting for Joe Biden. They were just doing what Bernie told them to do so that we wouldn't get Donald Trump. So there was that fear mongering of Donald Trump. However, the problem is, and I warned about this, Joe Biden never actually built, built a solid base. So what you had were people who were voting against Donald Trump. You had younger voters who voted for Biden because Bernie told them to so that you don't get Donald Trump. And you had the loyal Democrat voters that are going to vote for the Democrat candidate, regardless of who they are anyway, because they're going to support the party. Now we enter Joe Biden's possible reelection and he's starting to see he never built a solid base. So I would not be surprised if Joe Biden loses in 2024. And I'm pretty sure they're going to blame young voters. They're going to blame African-American men. They're also going to blame the third party uh, candidates. But the blame lies on Joe Biden for not fulfilling his campaign promises. Mm. Sabrina Salvati, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much.
I'm Kent Garrett, and that's it for this Thursday, December 21st edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard.